Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. Amen. If you are a note taker, you're one of those people. And you know what? There are still, believe it or not, that rare, strange person that's a note taker. I had somebody after first service show me their notes. They had two pages laid out and it had like all kinds of diagrams and cool stuff. And I was like, wow, that is beautiful. The notes were a work of art. Um, So it was really, really impressive. But if you're a note taker, you could put this down as the title for this message. The title is Reset, that I may know him and love him. Reset, that I may know him and love him. I'm going to start today with some questions. Now, these questions are not questions that you need to answer me with. These are questions that are meant to probe your mind and heart in your own relationship with God. So I want to ask you some questions so you'll think about your own relationship, your own union, your own fellowship with God. So here's the first question. Do you know and love Jesus Christ? Have you come to know and believe that God loved you first so you can love Him in return? Have you come to realize that the greatest quest and the greatest pursuit of life is to know God? Do you regularly remember all that God has forgiven in your life? Are you filled with love and gratitude in return? Those are some probing questions, aren't they? You know, Jesus taught us that those who are forgiven much love much. So today we're going to look at those questions and try to answer them, but the real challenge that I want to put in front of you is a challenge that came to me during my sabbatical, and it was this assessment of the Holy Spirit that God does in me regularly that brings me back to center and and asks me the question, as he asked Peter at the end of John 21, do you love me? Do you love me? Are you following me because I'm a means to an end, or do you see me as your treasure, as your goal, as your purpose, as the meaning of life? Because that's really what it's all about. If you're a point taker, my first point today is, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, knowing Jesus Christ is goal number one in your life. Knowing Him is goal number one. I want you to look with me at Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 11, give you a little backdrop to the story. The Apostle Paul is writing a church in a city in Asia Minor called Philippi, and Philippi was a church that started when a group of women were praying next to a river, and Paul went into the city and went down to the riverside and saw this group of women and met them. And as he met them, he began to preach the gospel to them. And and they already had a hunger for God and a desire for God. But when Paul preached the good news to them, they recognized their need for Jesus Christ in fullness, and they began to follow him. And out of that, a new church was birthed. Paul wrote this letter while being a prisoner in the Roman Empire. He had been arrested for preaching Jesus. 
He'd been arrested, and, and so while he was arrested, he redeemed the time. He wrote a number of letters in the New Testament. So he writes this to challenge the church in Philippi, to bring some correction to some things, but mostly to encourage them that in the midst of their struggles, they can have joy in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is everything they're looking for, everything they desire. He's the fulfillment of all their dreams and their hopes and their goals. Amen? Look at it with me, verse 7. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. A question for you in your own life do you count everything as a loss compared to knowing Christ? You know, Paul had lost everything, yet he had gained Christ. He found Christ to be greater than all of his genealogy, all of his education, all of his Jewish heritage, all of his privileged position as a learned rabbi, and everything that came with it. If you know about Paul, Paul was one of the greatest minds in all of Judaism. He had studied under the greatest rabbi teacher of that time, a man named Gamaliel. And he'd been a part of the school of Gamaliel and received instruction and tutelage under this great teacher and this great mind in Judaism. And he believed because of that that he was in the right way. He was a Pharisee. He was a, a person who was very strict about his faith and strict about keeping the law. And in fact, right before this, he kind of brags a bit in a, in a humble way. He talks about his background. He talks about his heritage, his genealogy, the fact that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. In other words, he's the best of the best. He says of himself, in keeping the law, I was blameless. So he says some pretty profound things about himself. And then he, as he's wrapping all of that up, he, understand, he understood something. All of it meant nothing. For one day as he's on a road to the city of Damascus in Syria, he's going to Damascus with certificates that he'd been given by the authorities. The, the religious authorities had told him, go out and arrest everyone who's a follower of the way. And at that time, the way was those who followed Jesus. It was before they were called Christians. So these followers of the way, these followers of Jesus 
were being arrested by Paul. He was going to their homes. They were beating the door down. The authorities were there, and they would drag them from their homes and take them to jail and lock them up in jail and seize their possessions. And, and it went so far as to be a, a situation where Paul was there when Stephen, the first martyr, was stoned to death. And while Stephen was being stoned to death, Paul was holding all the garments of the men who were throwing the rocks and giving his hearty approval and said of himself later that he was a murderer and a blasphemer. So he thought he was right. He thought he was good. He thought he was doing everything he needed to do. He was the most religious man around. And yet he was missing God completely. And in the midst of that situation, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. The scripture says, as he's on the road to Damascus at noon, while the sun was at high noon, Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus was so bright, he eclipsed the sun and blinded Paul. Paul fell to the ground and Jesus said, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Saul, who is Paul? And in the midst of that conversation, Saul was converted his eyes were open, God spoke to him, gave him a calling upon his life, and, and he went out from there, and after that he lost everything. He was imprisoned, he was beaten multiple times, he was left for dead on multiple occasions, he experienced hardship and pain and rejection and suffering and sorrow. Every city that he went to and preached in, people would come and persecute him and resist him and fight him every inch of the way. He, took his, he spent his entire life running in some ways from those who hated him. And yet in the midst of all of that, he saw that Jesus was worth it. Jesus was a greater treasure than everything he had lost. You know, his state of mind is one that few of us ever attain to, but where God is taking us See, I want to tell you something. If you're a child of God, if you've said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Forgive me. I believe in you. I trust in you. It's not going to be okay for you to have nominal faith. It's not going to be okay for you to flirt. It's not going to be okay for you to see Jesus as a means to an end, to a successful life and a good life, just that you can kind of do what you want to do and stamp Jesus' blessing on it. I'm telling you, he will make sure that life arranges circumstances for you, that force you regularly to your knees, force you to the recognition of your need for him, because he is after all of you. He wants every square inch of all that you are. For he's the God that loves you and gave his all for you. Am I talking to anybody? The sad thing is that many of us in this room, many of us that are the product of American Christianity, have been captivated by other gods. Did you know that? We've been captivated by other gods that uh, would include things like our shameless materialism or the false gods of money, sex, and power. Uh, I, I, I just know where many of us are as Christians in this country. We, we see God not as the all in all, not as the goal, not as the treasure, not as the one to sell all and follow, but we see him as this you know, part of our life. We just kind of add him conveniently and then want him to bless our own pursuits. But he is our treasure. He's our goal, our main pursuit. He's the one who will fulfill every itch, every desire, every yearning we have. 
And so what I want to say to you is that Jesus is greater. He's greater than all that you think is important. And he's promised you a whole new life, a life that you were really created for. You see, we think those things are going to give us what we need. They're going to affirm what we need. They're going to help us with our identity. They're going to make us feel value and significance. But what we find out over and over again is they leave us hollow. They leave us empty because they are not what we are to be fueled by. We were created by God for God and we can only live in God. Human beings without God are empty, hopeless, sad, lost creatures. C.S. Lewis said this in The Weight of Glory. He said, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We see this throughout Scripture. We see Esau selling his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. We see in Jeremiah in the second or third chapter where Jeremiah the prophet says of the people of God, he says, you've forsaken the living God who's a fountain of water, a fountain of life, and you've hewn out for yourselves cisterns. These would be holes in the ground to hold water. You've hewn out for yourself cisterns that hold no water, that are cracked, because you worship false gods and you run after other loves. And, and so while we're busy just trying to capture a little bit of water that's gonna satisfy us, this fountain awaits us, this fountain that is God, and this fountain is the only thing that ultimately will fulfill us, but we In our idolatrous lost hearts, we're searching all the time trying to stuff things in there and fill ourselves up and they just don't work. Amen. See, the main goal of life is to know and love God. The Father, think about this, the Father loves us so much, He sent Jesus for us and wants to redeem us. What does it mean to redeem us? To redeem is to buy something from slavery buy a person from slavery and repurpose that person for a redemptive thing, for something good, for something beautiful. So he redeems us from the power of sin and death that he might repurpose us towards something that gives honor and glory to God. Do you recognize? I I know I have to look at this every once in a while. Do you recognize how profoundly lost and hopeless that you were without Jesus Christ? Do you remember How many of you remember? I love that Pastor Noah got up here and and talked about remembering because it just set me up so perfectly. You know, one of the main things we have to do in the Christian life is remember. Remember what God did. Remember where he brought us from. Remember all the miracles he's performed. Remember the times that he, when we deserved to be rejected, when we were dull and cold-hearted and angry and when we were bitter, God came to us and redeemed us and forgave us and loved us and overwhelmed us again and again with his kindness. And we became recipients of that thing that John Newton sang of, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Am I talking to anybody? Has he opened your eyes to the evil of your own heart in the past? 
and the beauty of his atoning sacrifice and love? Do you love him because he's shown you his great love? Have you determined with God's help to be on a lifelong quest to know and love him before and above all others? If the answer is no, don't despair. Today could be the day your heart resets. Today you can simply draw near to God and ask him to recapture and reset your heart because he's worth it. He's everything you've ever desired, everything you've ever wanted, which takes me to my next point. We love God when we know and believe he loved us first. Isn't that true? 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, 16, and 19. Look at this with me. I, I just, I love scripture. Verse 10, love consists in this. Not that we loved God. Everybody just kind of do a collective sigh with me. <sighs> because see, I was challenging you a minute ago. Do you love God first? Do you want to know him first? But here's the beauty. It's impossible. Look, look. The gospel's clear. You can't love God, you can't know God, you won't pursue God, you won't chase God if He doesn't first chase you. If He doesn't first change your heart. If He doesn't do something in you. If you found that at the end of that first point you were almost despairing, like, no, I'm not there. That's okay, that's exactly where you need to be and I need to be. We need to recognize our inability, that our hearts wander so quickly, that we love to chase other things, that we love to put our attention and affection on other things. That's just the way humans are. But when God chases you and rescues you and redeems you and captivates you, now you can love him. Now you can chase him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 16, and we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Notice that, and we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Think about this. Love is, love equals, not that we love God, but that he loves us and sent Jesus to atone for our sins. Those who've been forgiven much love much. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever met somebody, I know, I know you have because we have people like this in our church, that's newly saved, newly born of God, that came out of some really dark stuff, and they get rocked. And they're just so excited about living. And when they're new, sometimes they might even drop an occasional salty word, you know, but you don't care. Because you're just so refreshed, because you're hearing a heart ablaze, a heart that's been captivated. They know. <laughs> I used to be here and I was like this and I was full of bitterness and anger and I was addicted and I hated everybody and, and, then, and then Jesus, and he loved me and I, I felt forgiveness and all the weight lifted off me and he gave me a new life and he gave me a new focus and now I have a reason to live and you're just with him and you just, I'll tell you what, you get around a few, few people like that and hang out with them and, and, and in about five minutes you're just like, yeah, come on. See, those people know they've been forgiven much. And people that have been forgiven much love much. All of us need to be forgiven much. You know, we're going to look at a story in a few minutes and, 
And when Jesus is speaking of being forgiven much, he's not saying that some people need to be forgiven uh, more than other people do. And in a way, it's true. We know some people go into really dark places before they're converted, and some people are pretty good, pretty good people, and we'll talk about that until they're converted. But here's the reality, the human heart, whether it's a human heart of self-righteousness or a human heart of deep, dark addiction, In fact, in some ways, the self-righteousness is worse than the deep, dark addiction because the self-righteousness blinds people. It's rooted and grounded in pride, and pride is the sin of Satan. It's the sin that he rose up in to try to overthrow the throne of God. So if if you got self-righteousness and pride in you, but you think you're pretty good, and you think you're pretty holy, and you look at all those other people that are into all that dark stuff, and you kind of look down your nose at them, your sin is worse than theirs because you're blind and you can't see you desperately need a Savior just as much. Even if you already have that Savior, you need Him again today. See, all of us need to be forgiven much, but not everyone recognizes it. Perhaps the greatest and most blinding sin, as I just said, is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is rooted in pride, and pride blinds us. We become experts. Think about this. We become experts in other people's sins, but we become blind to our own. When a person sees the atoning death of Jesus on the cross, they recognize the great love of God for them. The only response to God's great love is to love God and to love people big, much big, amen. And then we, under this section, we also learn that we must come to know and believe the love that God has for us. I have followed Jesus now for 39 years. Next month will be 39 years. And I'm just beginning to really know and believe that God loves me beyond comprehension. I'm a slow learner. And I got a lot of damage in my life. Parent issues, pain from my past, my own bad decisions. Stuff came along and broke me up and twisted me. So when I came to Christ, I, I really needed God's love. I needed His restoring grace so desperately. And I have followed him for 39 years and I slip regularly as many Christians I know do. I slip out of being confident in his love and standing in his grace and not counting on my own righteousness to kind of slowly getting over into works righteousness and trying to do it on my own and becoming self-reliant and, and, and forgetting how loved I am and then striving and trying to do my own thing and then all of a sudden one day I'm just undone with my own failure and God shows me, yeah, been trying to do it on your own again, huh? Yeah, it doesn't work, does it? I love you. When you get secure in my love, you'll be able to rest and love others as you've been loved. See, my love for God is based upon God revealing his love for me. When I begin to grasp God's love for me in my deepest being, I can then respond by loving him back. And when I love him with the love he provides, I can also begin to love people as he does. I got to know and I got to believe in this love. You understand that even our love for God and our love for people is a gift from God. Romans tells us that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that any ability that we have to love, even the love we return to God in worship and in prayer and in acts of obedience and in trying to please Him, all of those things that come out of that love inside of us for God and for people has been given to us by God. It's God's love going back to Him. But really, if you think about it, that's true of everything in life. 
Like if you work hard and you got a good mind and you've made money and you've been successful, every bit of that ability to do that inside of you is a gift from God. Yes, you might have taken that gift and you might have developed it, but even the ability to develop it is grace from God. That's why we can't, we have to be as Paul. There is nothing good in me that is in my flesh. All that is good and all that is beautiful is Christ. That way we can't ever boast. We can't ever look at ourselves in the light of other people and make them the standard and say, I'm better than that one and I'm above that one because we recognize that every good thing in us is gift and grace. Am I talking to anybody? We love God because he first loved us, simple. Without understanding God's love for us, we cannot love him or others well or rightly. People who haven't grasped the depths of their own sin and God's great forgiveness and love for them cannot love God or people well. I've noticed that over the years. People that don't really see how much God has done for them and how much they need him it's really hard for them to love difficult people, people that are difficult to them. It's really hard for them to go the extra mile. It's like, I'm not gonna deal with that, I'll let somebody else take care of that. Why? Because they haven't grasped the depth of God's love for them in Jesus Christ. And this takes me to my last point, and that is we love God when we've been forgiven much. We love God much when we've been forgiven much. Look at this story with me, and it's a well-known story. Uh, 14 verses, but that's okay. We'll get through it quickly. Look at this with me. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Then one of the Pharisees invited him, the hymn here is Jesus, to eat with him. Remember, the Pharisees were the strictest religious sect in Judaism. Okay, so these are the people who prided themselves on their ability to keep the law. Okay, at least outwardly. Jesus said of many of them, but inwardly they were full of dead man's bones. So they knew how to dress up the outside of the house and look religious, but on the inside, stuff wasn't right. It was really actually evil. And Jesus was smoking it out all the time. You ever notice that? These are the people Jesus got in fights with all the time. <laughs> right, the church folk. Uh-oh. Right, church folk of that time. So here. And one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner, most scholars believe she was a prostitute, found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and I'm not gonna be able to break this all down, but it was a very, very expensive jar of perfume, more than a year's wages, and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. Can we just pause for a second? I want you to think about this story. I mean, just think about it in our culture. We look at it, you know, we read the Bible sometimes and it's kind of distant to us. It's an old book in a different world at a different time but let's bring it home here. Peggy and I invite you over to our home for dinner. And all of a sudden in the midst of dinner, a knock comes on the door and there's a woman at the door and it's obvious that this woman, maybe, maybe she's a meth addict and she's sleeping around on the street so she can get meth. And you can tell 
She's dirty and has had a hard life. And suddenly she bursts through the door weeping and she kneels down at your feet or my feet and she begins to clean them with her hair and weep on them. And she's got this most precious thing. She's held on to it. She's been able to keep it from other people and she's got this most precious perfume and she's pouring it on your feet and it's the most precious possession she owns. And she's weeping and she's wiping and she's pouring and you're going, what the heck is going on? Think about it. Think about the awkwardness of it. How strange that would be. How shocking it would be. It was strange and shocking at that time too. Amen? And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, notice that he said to himself, so he's thinking this in his own mind. Can we get the text up? On? Yeah, there we go. He, th- he says to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, because he'd heard that Jesus was a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Jesus is a prophet. You get to see that right here. Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, I love this, he turns to the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. That was a typical thing you did with a guest. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, they would greet each other with a holy kiss. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, that was also a typical thing you did with a guest of honor but she's anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Is that one of those like, wow stories in the Bible or what? Isn't that powerful? It's so beautiful. It shows us the heart of God. Remember, Jesus is the clearest revelation of what God is like. Okay, let's, let's stop there for a minute. I want you to think about this. If you want to know what God is like, go read the Gospels and read the letters of Paul where, you know, the writers reveal Jesus Christ and, and look at the book of Revelation, because that is also a revelation of Christ. Go look at all the writings about Jesus. And by the way, he's all through the Old Testament as well. And then you get to see what God is like. For Jesus is the full representation. He's the full display of what God the Father is like. So if we want to understand the character and the nature of God, we merely look at Jesus Christ and we see the perfect, pure picture of what God is like. So think about that. Holy, absolutely, but profound love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Amen? See, people who have been forgiven much know they are loved. This is true in every relationship, but most especially with God. Whenever I've not loved my wife well, she's sitting right here, or treated her in a way that's not gracious or kind, I eventually realize it, and I, I feel guilty about it. But when she extends forgiveness and loves me, instead of reciprocating the 
the nasty attitude or the way that I treat her. It demonstrates love like nothing else. I have said this before, but maybe the greatest revelation of my married life has been to have somebody love me and yet know me for who I really am and all my failures and my sins. And if my wife can do that with me, how much more, billions multiplied more is God's love toward me and toward you, right? So when you realize that, when you realize all you've been forgiven of, and and again, I want to say this, Simon didn't have a smaller debt. Jesus was using that as a picture. What he's really talking about is self-perception. The self-perception of Simon was he didn't need much of a debt, a sin debt forgiven. But he was wrong. If she had a large debt, his was larger still because he was blind and didn't know he needed to be forgiven. See, perception, self-perception is really key here. When the good news of Jesus becomes real to you and you see him crucified for you, you know you've been loved in a way that's beyond any other love. And people who are forgiven and loved much will love much in return. I've noticed that when we forget all we've been forgiven of, we begin to love little. When the mercy, grace, love, and kindness of God becomes real to us again, often after some kind of failure, we can love much again. I've seen this pattern in my own life and many Christians. We get going along, we get a little self-righteous, we, we start to kind of look down our nose at other, make judgments about other people, and then God just kind of, he just kind of steps back a little bit and takes his hand of grace back a little, and he lets us experience, you know, a, a self-sufficiency, and we fall, we fail, we treat someone wrong, we do something we know we shouldn't do, and we make a mess of it, and then once again, we're like, help me, God, forgive me, I'm so sorry, and he's like, I forgive you. Now remember what you are without me. Remember what you are without me. We can love God and we can love people extravagantly without expecting anything in return when we've been forgiven much. I want to ask you a question. Do you need a reset today? Do you need a reset? I mean, honestly, you know, this... Whenever I preach, and any of us preach, there's this realization that you can only do so much. You like put the words out there, you prepare the message, and you let it go. And then at that moment, it's all up to the Holy Spirit, right? The only way we can see clearly is if He opens our eyes. The only way we can know where we're at, the state of our heart, is if He assesses us. And so my prayer today is, can you see your need? Are you, do you have a large capacity to love? Is Jesus your treasure? Is he your goal? Have you made your life's number one quest that you may know him? You know, something struck me on this sabbatical. I had to be brought back around to the fact that being a pastor, preaching, traveling to churches, getting to do missions trips around the world, all of those things cannot ever define me nor satisfy me. That I cannot find my identity ultimately in what I do, though I'm so privileged and honored to stand here and do this, but I can't find my identity in it. 
And I want to tell you something, it doesn't satisfy me. It does when I'm making him my goal. It's just like today. Do you know, ultimately, as I stand here and preach to you, Paul tells Timothy that when he preaches the word, he stands before God. So ultimately, I'm standing before God right now. And my preaching is in his face. And each of us, we hear the message and we need the Holy Spirit to show us. And, and I know this. I, I know that many Christians that I know, they, many of us don't, honestly, we don't love God. We tell people we love God. But our language and our life betrays us. Our heart's far from Him. We're cold and dull. We, we, we're trusting in, we're, we're looking to God to be our means to a good life or our own personal goals. But we don't see Him as like the one to get to know. When's the last time you spent time in prayer and you said to God, I just want to know you. Show me what you're like. Unveil your attributes to me. I want to understand what it means that you're holy. I want to understand what it means that you're love, that you're justice, that you're mercy, that you're almighty, that you're omniscient, that you know all things, that you're everywhere present, omnipresent. I want to understand what you're like. I want to know your character. Lord, unveil it to me. When I read scripture, show me what you're like. Jesus, as I read about you, let me see the heart of the Father. When's the last time you took time just to say to God, Lord, I'm not praying today because I want you to help me with my business or help me in my marriage or do this and do that. And those things are great to ask and he wants you to. But when's the last time you sat at his feet for five minutes and you said, Lord, I want to know you. Show me what you're like. Open my eyes. Open my heart. Let me see you more clearly. Let me love you more dearly. Be the pursuit of my life. Be everything I'm looking for. I yearn for you. I want to know you, Lord. I don't want to play religion. I want to be captivated by a beautiful, powerful, almighty God. And, I, and I'm, I'm telling you, when that starts to come out of you, God's going to, God loves that. Oh, he loves that. Because you know what? He's looking for lovers. The whole story of the Bible is a lover after his beloved. And you are the beloved of God. Do you know that Jesus purchased a bride? In his eyes, there's nothing more beautiful in all of creation. There's no planetary system. There's no galaxy. There's no mountain. There's no valley. There's no lake, river, or ocean. There's nothing in all of creation that holds a candle to you. You are the beloved of God. And He loves you. And I'm telling you something. He will satisfy you like nothing and no one else can. He is absolutely beautiful. We sang of his beauty today. Have you ever thought about that? All beauty comes out of God. Whether it's a beautiful person, a beautiful vista, whatever's in creation that captivates us. Why do artists paint beautiful things? Why do musicians make beautiful music? 
Why is art and beauty what we all yearn for and desire? Because God is beauty personified. And he's what you're looking for and he's what you want. And so if you're feeling a sense of conviction today, that's a beautiful gift. It's God beckoning you. Come near. Come here. Let me love you. Let me convince you. Let me deepen your knowledge and belief and confidence in my love. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? I want to pray for a reset. Is there anybody else in this room that wants a reset in their heart toward God? If that's you, just focus your attention, put yourself in a posture that helps you to focus your attention on God. If you have to close your eyes or look to the heavens or kneel down or whatever, if you want to come to the altar, you can. If you want to kneel at your seat, if you want to, whatever helps you to concentrate. And let's pray together. And listen, you pray in your own heart. Use your own words. But I'm going to pray for us. Father, I ask you to captivate us afresh with the beauty of yourself, the beauty of your Son and of your Spirit, the beauty of the Gospel, the good news. I ask you to remind us of all we've been forgiven of. Lord, that we would see how much you love us and how much you've forgiven us. And we would respond with love and we would respond with extravagant love toward you and toward other people. Lord, pour out upon us a revelation of yourself. Open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, the eyes of the heart that we might see you. Lord, fulfill what the psalmist wrote when he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do that in us, Lord. Cause us to taste and see that you can be a God that is known, that you are knowable, that you can be experienced, that you are near and real, that you're closer than our skin, that you're the hunger and the desire of our lives, that you're the hope of the nations, that you're the one that all creation is yearning for. The scripture says in Romans 8, all creation is standing on tiptoes waiting for you and your glorious sons to be revealed. And so Lord, show us yourself and show us your love. Reset our hearts, Lord. And Lord, if we've sold out for the world stew, then help us to cast it aside and eat and drink of you. That we might taste and see that you're good and know that you are the bread of life and you are the fountain and the river of living water. That you're everything we look for and hope for. You are the new wine. You are everything. You are the kingdom and it's in you, so we seek you. Lord, do that work in us, we pray. Change our hearts and turn us toward you. In Jesus' name, amen.